Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm joined by Dr. Carolyn Coker-Ross, an internationally known author, speaker, expert, and pioneer in the use of integrative medicine for the treatment of eating disorders, obesity, and addictions. And I want to welcome Dr. Ross to the show. Hey, Dr. Ross, how are you? Hey, Ella. It's great to be on your show. Well, listen, this is a topic that is important to so, so many people. But before we jump in, Dr. Ross, could you just tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm an addiction medicine specialist. I'm also boarded, besides in addiction medicine, in preventive medicine, both of which have been an interest of mine throughout my career. And basically, I focus in my work on treating obesity, addictions, and eating disorders with an integrative medicine approach, as you mentioned. I graduated from integrative medicine fellowship with Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I have private practices in both San Diego and Denver. And I'm also starting an exciting new business offering international online coaching for people with obesity and binge eating disorder through my program, which is called the Anchor Program. Dr. Ross, I have a question for you, and it's one that I ask of all of the MDs who also are in the integrative medicine world. I find the connection there absolutely fascinating. Tell me a little bit about what led you from your traditional training as a medical doctor into the more integrative or holistic medical field. Sure. Yeah, I trained at the University of Michigan, which is a very, you know, traditional medical school, but a great one. And then I was in practice for a couple of years and began to realize that 80% of what I saw, even when I worked in the emergency room, had to do with people's lifestyle. So in the ER, for example, we would see people coming in over and over with the same problems that were linked to either what they were eating, whether or not they were exercising, their stress level, et cetera. And it just became very clear to me that I needed to be more prepared to help people you know, be able to change their behaviors. And so that's when I went back to school and did a residency in preventive medicine, which really focused on you know, how do you get people to make that difficult transition in their lives, whether it be to eat more healthy foods or, you know, to reach a healthy weight or whatever it is, it's not easy to do. So that's where I got started. And then I began to see also the increase in addictions in uh, my practice. And so I ended up learning more about that and eventually taking my boards in addiction medicine. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me what led you to specifically focus on binge eating and overeating, Dr. Ross. Was that something that you had personal experience with or were particularly passionate about? I think more the latter, particularly passionate about it. I work with all the eating disorders and I, you know, I was the head of the eating disorder program at Sierra Tucson for a number of years. And since then, I've been a consultant and have helped different treatment programs, inpatient and residential treatment programs, develop eating disorder programs that also treat addictions. So, you know, it's been an interest of mine since I was first in practice, not from personal experience, but 
just because I've always been fascinated by that, what do you call it, the intersection between uh, lifestyle and medicine. So, you know, people with obesity problems and binge eating and people with anorexia have psychological issues, they have nutritional issues, they have emotional issues, and they have medical issues. So I just find it, you know, very intriguing. And also when you add in that need to make changes in lifestyle and the need to change your behaviors, it's just fascinating. Well, Dr. Ross, before we jump in, I think it's useful to explain what the distinctions are, if any, in your view, between binge eating and compulsive overeating and just overeating, because I do, in fact, know there's a difference between the latter, at least in the first two. But are binge eating and compulsive overeating the same thing? Most people don't feel that they are. Binge eating is a recognized disorder now. It's listed in the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatry and medicine. So binge eating has a specific list of criteria, including eating large quantities of food in a short period of time, usually less than two hours, feelings of emotional distress about how much you're eating in isolation, uh, feelings of shame and guilt associated with overeating. So binge eating disorder has been well-defined. There's a lot of research to support it now. And we don't have the same for compulsive overeating. And I think the main difference is that distinction of the binge. And the binge eating being eating that large quantity of food in a short period of time. Whereas people with compulsive overeating can maybe be what we used to call grazers. They may just eat all day or they may just eat more than they should at any given meal. So there's different patterns. And I don't think that there's as much emotional component or psychological component associated with the overeating as there is with binge eating disorder, which is more similar to the other eating disorders in that way. Yeah. And I think it's useful actually to render a distinction because I think that you explained binge eating very, very well, condensed period of time, uh, feelings of lack of control, uh, usually done in isolation, associated with feelings of shame and guilt and remorse and regret. And to me, overeating, and I'm skipping over compulsive overeating for just a moment, but overeating to me in very simplistic terms is very often done in public. And you might experience feelings of discomfort, but it's a more natural tendency that the human race has, right, is to overeat or to indulge at times. And I do think it's important because I don't want anyone to start labeling themselves with some sort of binge eating disorder because they occasionally indulge or overeat. I don't think that's useful. Would you agree or disagree? Well, I agree that uh, we don't want to pathologize or make it mean something that it doesn't for people who are overeaters because, you know, as I say, binge eating disorder is well-defined. And I think a lot of people think of themselves as binge eaters because they overeat, but binge eating is really a very separate entity. And when we're talking about a large quantity of food, for example, I've had patients who've eaten an entire chicken at one sitting. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, eating a bag of chips or, you know, occasionally overeating uh, chocolate or eating big meals. It's really a large quantity of food, something more than most of us would consider even as overeating. And then I would imagine compulsive overeating is somewhere in between those two things. Again, I'm speaking as a layman here, Dr. Ross, but 
it implies, at least to me, that it's a habit of overeating, which again is still distinct from binge eating disorder. So compulsive overeating might be, for example, that this is a pattern that you are creating and a habit, a behavior that you are repeating, and therefore it is it has become a habit, maybe even on autopilot for you. But binge eating, what I'm intuiting anyway, and again, you're here to correct me, but binge eating to me is almost like a dissociation like you sort of check out, like almost like uh, somebody with an addiction to alcohol might also do. I mean, it's very, very different than just indulging in my book. I think you're right in that people with binge eating often eat very unconsciously. But you know what? In general, the entire population of the Western world tends to eat unconsciously. You know, many times, even people who don't overeat are not paying attention to what they eat at their desk, they eat in the car, you know, they eat while they're watching TV. So I don't know that we can say that that's as big of a distinction. But with compulsive overeating, there is no specific medical definition. Mm. So anything we say is just basically going to be anything I say would be my opinion. But I do think that there is a, a habit in many families to overeat. There's a lot of people who been on the diet treadmill their whole lives. And so they alternate between, you know, not eating anything or being on a diet to then overeating. And that overeating may stop short of a binge, but it may be more chronic. Whereas people who binge eat may do it two or three times a week or more. But people who compulsively overeat generally do that on a regular basis. So that may be one of the components And sometimes it can come from lack of knowledge. Sometimes it can come from, this is what my family has always done. Mm -hmm. So this is how I was raised. I think, you know, there's uh, some confusion still because we don't have a specific definition for compulsive overeating or emotional overeating or stress overeating. But I think most people know what those are or have a good idea. Yeah, I think they know that they're there and they relate to some of the things that you're saying, which is this feeling of disconnect, this feeling of isolation, followed by shame and regret. And not, oh, I ate too much, but, oh, I can't believe I did it again. I'll quit tomorrow. I mean, it's very much the language and the feeling that an addict of any other sort would use. That's been my observation. What do you think about that, Dr. Ross? Well, uh, binge eating disorder, and I want to make sure we use that term or BED, Because when you talk about binge eating, you can say, you know, I binge ate over Thanksgiving, but that doesn't make you have binge eating disorder. So binge eating disorder, however, causes a lot of distress in someone's life. It causes a lot of chaos in their lives. I mean, people have gone into debt to pay for food that they they binge eat. It can affect relationships because your primary relationship, if you have binge eating disorder, is with food, not with anything else. And so it is more like eating disorders in that way in that it causes more psychological, psychosocial distress than compulsive overeating or being overweight or obese. Well, let's get a few more terms on the table. How do you define food addiction? And is that different than some of this disordered eating that we're talking about? Well, as you know, I actually wrote a whole book on that, which I'm excited to say is coming out on September the 1st and is already available for pre-order on Amazon. It's Mm -hmm. called the Food Addiction Recovery Workbook. And what I learned myself in researching for that book is, again, there is no medical definition for food addiction. However, 
there are an increasing number of research studies that are looking into whether food addiction should have its own uh, diagnostic category. And I think there's two camps about food addiction. In one camp, which are, are exemplified by Overeaters Anonymous and Food Addiction Anonymous groups, there's a feeling that certain foods, particularly foods that are sugary or highly processed or are kind of white flour and white sugar foods, are indeed in and of themselves addictive, such that anyone with a vulnerable personality who eats these foods will become addicted to them. And so they really recommend that people with their calling food addiction avoid white flour foods and white sugar food foods completely as a way of managing their addiction. Very similar to what Alcoholics Anonymous recommends, which is obviously not to drink. I'm not particularly in that camp. I'm in a different camp. And my feeling is that food addiction, just as many of the other eating addictions, it's really not about the food. It's really about how you're using the food. Mm. And there are so many people who have you know, a lot of emotional issues, a lot of stress in their lives, but beyond that, who have a genetic predisposition for addictions. And when they then encounter certain foods, they latch on to those foods as a way to self-medicate their anxiety, their depression, their whatever other emotional issues. And that's really consistent throughout all of the eating disorders. There is a genetic component and then there is an eating addiction. So for many people who consider themselves food addicts, they may have had childhood trauma, they may have had adult trauma or young adult trauma, they may have come from a home where they were neglected or where they were abused. And these issues actually, especially the childhood issues, can cause changes in the brain that are so significant they actually rewire the way the brain works. And I know many of your listeners have probably heard about the dopamine reward center, which we talk about a lot in terms of food addiction and other addictions. But for people with addictions, there are fewer receptors, we think, in that part of the brain that registers reward. And certain foods, just like a number of other things that cause addiction, really target that part of the brain. So when you eat sugar, it makes you feel good because it's producing dopamine or serotonin or other neurotransmitters in your brain. And that's normal, but for some people who don't have the same brain wiring or whose brain wiring has changed because of childhood experiences, that can lead to obsessions about food. I hope that wasn't too long of an explanation for you. No, not at all. And I have so many questions. So let me see if I understand this correctly. You're saying food addiction is not necessarily about the food. It's about a predisposition for addiction based on environmental factors or genetic factors or predispositions. And then, however, the food certainly plays a role in the dopamine hit that you might get or the response that you might have to it. So it's not that it's irrelevant. You're saying, though, that it's not necessarily the food is the initial catalyst. It's this predisposition toward addictive patterns. Yes, exactly. That was very well said. 
And the food does play a role. So certain foods may be more triggering Mm -hmm. than other foods. But what I'm really saying is that we should not put our attention solely on the food, which is what the other camp does. They're saying you can never eat these foods. And I don't think we have any research to show that that is true, that a person can never eat those foods. You may choose not to because it may be triggering for you. But I think in the long run, if you work on the things that underlie your addiction and if you change your lifestyle to, you know, to have a a more balanced lifestyle, then you'll realize that the food won't have as much power over you as it does for many people with food addiction right now. So is it fair to say then that if we attribute sort of all of the problem, if you will, to the food itself, then we may actually be overlooking an opportunity to figure out what might really be going on with us or what emotions are behind that addictive tendency or some other elements in ourselves that we might be missing the opportunity to sort out, if you will, by by just attributing all of the blame on the food. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think also, um, you know, there are many people who, when they put their focus on the food and they may not eat those sugar and white flour foods, but find it impossible to sustain that kind of restrictive diet. So that sets up, you know, that kind of vicious cycle where people are restricting and then they are binging and restricting and binging. And we do know from research that, you know, that kind of yo-yo dieting, as we used to call it, is not very good for your health. So what I'm trying to promote is, just as you said, a way for people to identify some of the underlying causes of their eating addiction, but at the same time to be able to find a program for themselves, a lifestyle, a way of eating, and a way of thinking about their bodies that is sustainable. You know, obviously there are people who go on this kind of diet and you'll read online that they say it saved their lives. And that's great. If you can do that and that's what you want to do, more power to you. I have nothing against that because, you know, there's no real physiologic need for white flour or white sugar in our bodies. That's for sure. You know, we don't have to eat that. But for those people who find it very difficult to constantly be in, on that, that kind of restrictive program, you know, looking a little deeper may provide the kind of answer that will give them a more balanced approach towards their eating addiction. Yeah. And you raise a really important point, which is that deprivation mindset. It can actually trigger one's uh, addictive tendencies again. So it can actually end up backfiring if it's not sustainable for you. Now, I know abstinence works for some people. And again, as everyone's heard me say one billion times, if one thing worked for everybody, we would have figured it out by now. So we'll leave room for the fact that different things work for different people. But of course, there'll be that faction of people for whom abstinence works. And then the rest of us who maybe don't want to live that way and have things on the permanent no list, but want to kind of be in control of our decisions and not have the food be in control of us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we need to always be looking at what really works for people. And like you say, some for some people, they can do it that way. But for other people, it just sets up the vicious cycle and more pain and more suffering and more yo-yo dieting. And that isn't really productive. So I think, 
you have to look at the big picture. And in my book, that's what I've tried to do. I've told people in the book about the food addiction anonymous groups and about what their philosophy is. And then I also offer an alternative approach where through the workbook, they can identify some of the underlying causes of their eating addiction or their obsessions about food. And then they can work through those in the workbook. And hopefully that will give them a little more freedom and food won't have as much power over them. Well, now one distinction that may or may not be useful for everybody else, but I'm curious, what's the difference between binge eating and food addiction? Yeah, again, nobody knows because we, we really don't have a specific definition for, you know, for food addiction yet. I think in coming years, that may become more clear. Some people in the binge eating disorder world have begun to make, uh, talk about lumping in compulsive reading and uh, food addiction under the binge eating disorder. So we don't know where that's going to go. But I think that there are some specific differences with people who have food addiction, and that is their obsessions about very specific foods. And while some people with binge eating disorder may you know, tend to binge on the same foods over and over, people with food addiction often have very specific like sugary foods or salty foods or whatever. And they obsess about the food in a way that I think is even more so than what we find with binge eating disorder. So it may be part of the eating disorder spectrum and maybe a little farther along the gradient, but we won't know until the research is uh, complete where it comes out. Well, and you have made an important point in my book, which is food addiction to me. And that terminology actually puts the blame, if you will, I'm sort of using quote marks there, but puts the blame on the food, which I actually have a little bit of a reaction to, because to me, it it takes some of the, not just accountability, but the power away from the human that's involved in the equation. But I do hear what you're saying, which is food addiction can be about specific foods, whereas binge eating it can be more about satisfying the urge to binge. Like it doesn't matter what food you are putting in your mouth. I do want to continue to make the distinction that people with binge eating disorder, it's a very different group of people than those who binge eat. You know, it's become kind of a fad to talk about binging, you know, binge watching on TV or binge this or that. And so I don't want to do disservice to the people who have a disorder called binge eating disorder. And again, you have to meet very specific criteria in order to get diagnosed with binge eating disorder. And we mentioned those earlier. That's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. repeatedly eating large quantities of food in a single sitting, usually in less than a two-hour period, eating often in isolation, embarrassment about how much you're eating, uh, shame and disgust about your eating patterns, et cetera. So that happens every time they binge. And in order to be diagnosed with binge eating disorder, it's not just binging at Thanksgiving or mm-hmm. binging when you're having a stressful day. It is a repetitive behavior that occurs at least two to three times per week, every week. And they have a complete loss of control over their behavior. They cannot stop themselves. For me, emotional eating is something that I think all of us do, some more than others. Right, like a much wider umbrella here, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So, you know, we can it basically it's obvious it's eating in response to emotions. And mm-hmm. some people think, well, when I'm happy, I eat when I'm sad, I eat when, you know, so how is that emotional eating? But it is, it's eating in response to that emotion, whatever it is. If it's you're celebrating something, then you feel the need to overeat when you're celebrating. And you may also feel the need to overeat if you're angry or if you're sad. And so those are the people who have emotional eating. Again, we don't have a medical diagnosis for them, but I think I can say to your listeners, I think you know who you are. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, do we really need one? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, now this is a problem that I can say I experience and have to really pay attention to because, you know, I think most of us, life can become very busy and hectic. And while I'd like to think I have great coping skills, you know, if I have a really hectic day and then I'm exhausted at the end of the day, I will have a tendency to want to go and overeat because I don't have time to go to the gym or I don't have energy to go to the gym or, you know, I don't use my other coping skills. So I think in this case, emotional eating becomes a way of coping with your emotions. I think so many people can relate to that. And I don't want them to feel that there's any stigma associated with it. And it doesn't mean that we can't manage it or be aware of it. I also would submit that it's not something we should beat ourselves up over. (laughs) Well, you know, in general, I think that's one of the things I emphasize in all of my books, starting with the binge eating book and then going to emotional eating book and also the food addiction book. One of the things I harp on is no matter what your diagnosis is, no matter what your eating behavior is, don't judge yourself because the judgment is part of what sets us up to do it over and over again. We we judge ourselves, then we feel bad about ourselves. And then you think, well, I've already blown it, so I might as well just do it again. And that just keeps you in the loop. And when you break out of the loop by stopping the judgment, it can really change your behaviors a lot. So I think the judgment piece is super important for people to be aware of and interrupt when they find themselves, you know, saying, oh, I'm just a horrible person. Why can't I stop? What's wrong with me? All of that negative self-talk just promotes more negative behaviors. And yet it is such a hard pattern to break, Dr. Ross. And I say this all the time. I say shame is not a strategy. Like You can't berate yourself into submission. If you could, you would have done it by now. <laughs> exactly. One of my patients said it really good. She said, you can't beat yourself up enough to be thin. If you're saying, you know, my thighs are ugly, you know, my butt is big, whatever it is, whatever you're harping on and judging yourself for, it's not going to accomplish your purpose because if it were, you would have done it already, as you say. Well, let's talk about how to be a more conscious eater and how to bring consciousness into the fold just a little bit. But then I'd like to actually get into some of the strategies that you recommend for people who do, in fact, suffer from binge eating disorder. But let's first stay at a higher level and talk about some of the tools that you suggest to your clients, Dr. Ross, on just becoming more conscious or dealing with the consequences when one does overeat. I think the first thing that anyone can do when they are concerned about overeating is just to become more aware of their pattern. So sometimes, you know, if you just put your attention up for one day on when you find yourself overeating and just keep a little 
journal and write in there, oh, I, you know, you can write down what you ate or you can just write down observations you've made and see if you can identify the pattern for when you overeat. Because if you have more information, your strategies will be more effective. So once you become more aware, then you ask yourself, you know, what kinds of things am I using food for? So if you're using it when you're under stress or if you're using it to numb yourself from emotions or maybe you are using food to give yourself a treat because you don't feel appreciated, etc. In integrative medicine, we look a lot at the metaphors that our behaviors present. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the metaphor of uh, someone who eats whatever they want because they feel like they're a rebel and they're not able to express that part of their, their personality or someone who you know, overeats when they're feeling like nobody cares about them. So this is their way of rewarding themselves. So the reward is the metaphor. So then you can take that metaphor and ask yourself, you know, how could I reward myself in other ways besides using food? The other thing I notice is that a lot of people overeat because their food, their their eating is not balanced. So I have so many patients who don't eat all day. And then by the time they get home, they're just literally ravenous, starving. Mm-hmm. And that, then they can't stop themselves from overeating because they're so hungry. And it's really hard if you're super hungry to stop yourself from overeating because you're eating fast. You don't give your body time to sense the miscues, et cetera. So, you know, if that's the case, again, you have to look at what are the things that you can do to shift that. So I've developed and put in my book something I call the simple plan, which is not a nutritional program. It's not the Weight Watchers exchange program. It's just a few simple things that you can focus on to make sure that your dietary intake is balanced because many people will crave certain foods and it's because they're not eating enough of other foods. Give you a perfect example. People who crave sugar often are not getting enough protein in their diets. So if you have some source of protein, whether it's vegetarian or not, with every meal and snack, then you may find that your sugar cravings are not as much of a problem as they used to be. If you eat three meals throughout the day, then you're less likely to be ravenous by the time you get home. And even if they're smaller meals, still having something that is fueling the pump while you're working and running around Mm -hmm. so that when you get home, you don't just crash and burn. No, that makes perfect sense. And it is true and almost lucky, in my opinion, if you figure out that it's nutritional deficiency that's creating your cravings or your desire to overeat because it's so fixable. And they say, for example, there are certain micronutrient deficiencies that can create specific cravings. And, you know, if you have a fixation with chocolate, you might be low in magnesium. No, that's actually true. Magnesium is one of those minerals that just like vitamin D that most people are low in. So Yeah, I think you have to start with the low-hanging fruit first. You know, do the obvious. Do start with what's obvious. That if you're not eating all day, there's obviously going to be a problem. If you're not eating enough high-quality food, obviously that's going to affect your brain. And I think most people, interestingly, don't feel that their brain is really connected to their bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of patients who don't make that connection that what I put in my mouth 
actually affects my brain because 50% of the calories you eat fuel the brain. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So let's just talk about people who are, you know, eating junk food all day. What is that doing to your brain? It's not pretty. I can tell you that. Yeah, it drives me crazy when people are less sensitive to the amount of junk that their kids are eating because they say, oh, they're kids, they're growing, they'll burn through it. And I'm like, you are literally making organs and brains. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I don't mean that in a judgmental way, because when we know better, we do better. But yeah. it is interesting how we have this cognitive dissidence, isn't it, between, you know, what this food is actually doing. It is, in fact, fuel. It is the building yeah. blocks of our entire body. But it's so easy to dissociate from that. Yeah. Way. Well, I, you know, I find it interesting. All the new studies that show that, like, pregnant women who eat more healthily or who take omega-3 fatty acids, their kids are, are smarter. So if nothing else will motivate you, having smart kids might motivate you to change your eating, especially during pregnancy. And the same thing goes for, you know, childhood. As you say, what you eat affects your IQ, it affects your mood, it affects your risk for developing things like uh, attention uh, deficit disorder and so on. So all of those things that people are ignoring, parents are ignoring when they feed their children easy, quick foods. Well, let me ask you this. With regard to more conscious eating, I would imagine that that would involve things, as you've already said, is to really paying attention and becoming aware of your patterns, asking yourself kind of what is happening right in that moment. Even if you continue with eating whatever it is you are eating, it is still useful, is it not, Dr. Ross, to just pause for the moment, acknowledge, accept, and be aware, no matter whether your behavior changes or not. Yes, absolutely. And again, not judge, even if you fall off the wagon, whatever that wagon is, because, you know, as I said, my approach is it's not about the food. It's about how you're using the food. So no matter what you eat, I always tell my patients, even if you're going to eat a chocolate cake or you're going to eat something else that you consider bad, if you eat it consciously, you'll learn a lot about yourself. I think that's really sage advice. And I think it's so useful to sit down. I mean, a lot of people don't even sit down anymore, right? Sit down, <laughs> remove distractions, chew your food, savor your food, taste your food, and be present in that moment. But Dr. Ross, my experience is that none of those work very well when you are in the midst of binge eating disorder binges, because you are absolutely not cognizant, you are not aware, you are not in the moment, what do you counsel people to do to break that cycle or to cope when they find they're in that place? Well, first of all, prevention is the best treatment. So if you can prevent a binge, that's your, your best hope. And then if you're, and, and by preventing, I mean, identify things that might trigger a binge. Is it you know, a certain emotion? Is it a certain situation? If you can identify as many of those situations as possible. But more than that, I think it, it is really working on those underlying causes for why you have binge eating disorder. You know, what, what are the things that contribute to the development of binge eating disorder, whether it's um, traumatic experiences or maybe a divorce. I have so many listeners, Dr. Ross, who are saying, yes, but I actually had a fairly decent childhood. 
I am in control of most area of my life. And this is an area of my life I just feel an utter, complete lack of control over. How do you counsel people like that? Well, if people have had a perfect childhood and there's nothing else going on, which, you know, honestly is very rare. Not perfect. I just mean they don't feel as though they have unresolved trauma. Is that fair? Yeah, but I'm mentioning besides trauma, there may have been a divorce. There may have been loss of a loved one. There may be marital issues. There may be issues in their career. But yeah, you don't have to delve into all of that if it's not significant for you. So if that's the case, then we have to use the behavioral approach. So, you know, there's lots of different approaches. It's not a quick and easy thing. I can't give you a list of Oh, here's five tips for sure, binge disorders sure. because it's a much more serious issue. But, you know, beside medication, therapy works, cognitive behavioral therapy works, learning emotional regulation works. All of those things can together be very effective in treating binge eating disorder. And some people who have more trouble interrupting their uh, binge eating disorder may need residential treatment where you go to a treatment center for 60 days and work on whatever needs to be worked on. Well, and I thoroughly respect that there's no, you know, cute blog post title we can slap on this and say five ways to cure your binge eating disorder. But you could probably shed a little light for us on what the behavioral approach entails, I suspect. It's what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, which really has to do with uh, changing your perceptions and your responses to things that trigger your binges. So it's really working through a series of processes where you can identify kind of the sequence of events that leads to a binge. So it may be, you know, my boss reprimanded me and, you know, I often feel very not appreciated or I feel that she doesn't like me. And so I have this emotion come up and it may remind me of a time when a teacher reprimanded me and I, so there's a chain of events that usually leads to the behavior and whatever that chain of events is for you, often it has a common denominator. The common denominator has to do with judgments you have about yourself, like I'm a weak person or nobody loves me or I'm unlovable. And these are often very unconscious. And in all of my books, in the workbook, books that I've written for binge eating disorder all the way through the emotional eating and the food addiction one coming out, I have exercises that can take you through some of the cognitive behavioral therapy therapies that we use for binge eating disorder or for emotional eating or for food addiction. And when you start to identify those unconscious beliefs about yourself, mm-hmm. then it will help tremendously in alleviating some of the urges to binge. Dr. Ross, this has been really, really insightful. Is there anything that I should be asking you about or anything else you want to share with the listeners? Well, I'd like to share that for many people that I see, you know, they have given up hope that they can change. And what I've found is that people often have unrealistic expectations about how long change takes. My preventive medicine training has shown me that, you know, to make more permanent changes, it's usually a three to five year process. So it's your problem, whether it's compulsive reading or emotional eating or food addiction 
or binge eating disorder, it's not going to be fixed with a 30-day diet or, you know, an exercise program. You have to really think in the long run and give yourself time. But there is hope. I have a one of my anchor program groups that I've been working with for five years. And it's so rewarding to see how much they've changed over that five-year period. And the change is sustaining. It's not, you know, something I see one month and then next month they're still dealing with the same stuff. They are making progress and it's really rewarding. So this is the kind of program that I wanted people to know about because I will be doing it online now, the Anchor Program. And if people that are listening are interested in finding more about it, they can go to my website, findingyouranchor.com. And I really appreciate being on your show, Ella. It's been really fun. Well, it's my pleasure and my honor, Dr. Ross. And one thing that I just want to say to the listeners who are resonating with some of the things that we've talked about, I know we just churned up a lot of stuff and there's no pat answer. There's no nice, pretty bow we can put on this. And, you know, 45 minutes later, you come out the other side. For those of you who this is really hitting home with, it's probably, you know, can be quite a dark place. And one thing I just want to remind those people of is that it may feel like a dark, isolated place, but there are so many people in this place. And so this is a theme that will come up again and again on the show. We'll talk more about it. And my hope is that we will be able to offer people some real peace and some real change. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for being a part of that. Thank you, Ella. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com, where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.